Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Denise Alice Bashan, Rebecca Dunham, Dan Beachy Quick, and Leanne Ron Paul. You will now hear Daniel Slager provide introductions. Hello. So we are going to begin promptly at 1.30. Um, thanks very much for, for coming out today. My name is Daniel Slager. I'm the publisher at Milkweed Editions. Have been for about a decade now. Um, and I want to just say a few things about Milkweed Editions before introducing our writers. Um, we were founded in 1980 in Minneapolis. Our mission as an organization is to identify, nurture, and publish transformative literature and build an engaged community around it. And um, we think of every book we publish as a work of art, roughly evenly divided um, between poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. Um, we've had on, on our nonfiction list a kind of an emphasis. The way we put it is um, books that uh, expand ecological consciousness, um, which we interpret broadly. Um, and occasionally, as happens, I think, even some among the writers on our panel today, um, this point of emphasis for us at Milkweed finds its way into uh, poetry and fiction as well. We have four writers here today, and um, we, we asked them, we kind of wanted to display the range and variety, uh, as well as the excellence of our list with these writers. And um, so I'll introduce them all now, and then they'll come up and read in turn, and then we'll have a little time for questions uh, following the readings. First up will be um, Denis Béchard, Denis Ellis Béchard, who is the author of five remarkably various books. Um, his first book was a novel, Vandal Love, uh, which won the Commonwealth Prize for best first book in the Commonwealth in 2006. We published that novel simultaneously with his second book, a memoir titled Cures for Hunger. His third book was a work of reportage, really, um, titled Of Bonobos and Men, about, um, largely about, it's about more than this, but it's about primarily a conservation group working to save bonobo great apes in Central Africa. What we can learn, and what we need to learn, both from this conservation group and from bonobos as human beings. And then Denise's fourth book, a novel, Into the Sun, we published this past October. This novel is set in Kabul, Afghanistan, a decade after 9-11 um, in the expatriate scene. Fascinating piece of work, which has had a lovely reception. Denise, um, sixth, sixth book, a novel titled White, is on our list for next year. Um, so we have, we're in pretty deep with Denise. Um, our second writer reading this evening is, uh, or this afternoon, is Rebecca Dunham. Um, who is the author currently of Cold Pastoral, which book has just been published in the last few weeks. Um, I want to just take a moment, because it's such a beautiful statement, um, such a wonder, uh, far better description of the book than I could come up with, um, from Juliana Spar, uh, one of the blurbs for the book, and so I'd like to read it. I think it describes the book beautifully. 
One way to understand the power of this book is that it revises the pastoral tradition so as to make it meaningful in the time of Deepwater Horizon and Flint and other environmental disasters. Another way to understand it is as a meaningful and moving series of poems that explore how contemporary landscape with their human-made dystopias, stress and mangle relations between humans, and that it does all of this without giving up on the lyric, the form that was made to explore the intimacies between humans that we call love is a sign of its timely power. I could not agree more. Um, Rebecca is also the author of three previous collections of poems. Um, her last book before this, Glass Harmonica, was also published by Milkweed. Our third author this afternoon is Dan Beachy Quick. Dan is the author of six collections of poems and two um, highly unusual works of nonfiction, both published by Milkweed Editions, A Whaler's Dictionary and Wonderful Investigations. Dan is currently working on, I'm sure among other things, um, his third work of nonfiction, titled A Quiet Book and scheduled for publication this fall. Um, and I believe Dan will be reading from A Quiet Book, which I'm very excited about. And then again, Lee, thank you so much for stepping in for Chris Dombrowski. Um, Lee and Rarpaw's most recent book is Dandarian's, and here too I'd like to draw on a more eloquent voice than mine uh, for a description of the book, which contextualizes it beautifully. That is uh, Srikanth Reddy. Um, Rorapaw mobilizes the Japanese haibun to investigate the dialectic of trauma and care that gives rise to a particularly luminous poetic sensibility. There is the culture shock of the mixed ethnicity child who inherits her Asian mother's mispronunciation of dandelions, thus the title. There is also the trauma of abuse, of a woman forced to repeat the things that were done to me that I have no names for yet. And yet the compound fractures of history are continuously mended by the grace of this writer's wit and her openness to the shocks of beauty that surround us. Dandarian's is a work of beauty and resilience. Lee, uh, Lee's, we have a, um, Lee's next collection of poems, uh, Tsunami versus the Fukushima, is scheduled for publication with Milkweed Editions in 2018. And um, Lee will follow Dan to the microphone. So um, I should add also, Denis is coming to us from Havana um, and just flew in this morning. Stuck in airports for two days. Stuck in airports for two days. So he, uh, Havana via Boston. Um, Rebecca is coming to us, I believe, from Milwaukee um, and, and lives in Madison. Um, Lee lives in South Dakota. So we also have geographical range, not just formal range and ranges of sensibilities. Um, Lee teaches at the University of South Dakota and uh, comes to us from Vermilion, South Dakota. And Dan came to us from Denver and teaches at uh, CSU in Fort Collins. So without further ado, Denis, I hope you have some voice. Thank you, Daniel. Can you guys hear me at all? Okay. So about twice a year I lose my voice, which is a problem that, considering the current presidential administration and cabinet, I wouldn't mind having if I shared it with other people of my demographic profile. But as the case may be, they can still speak. I am going to read um, briefly from Into the Sun. So Into the Sun is a book that I began working on in 2009 when I first went to Kabul, Afghanistan um, as a volunteer teacher and then later as a journalist. 
And what struck me when I went there was this sense of sort of a frontier energy, a sort of this frenzied energy of people who were seeing a boom town. So imagine Kabul when America invaded in 2001. The population was approximately half a million. Today it's between five and six million. In 10 years, it's, it's the fifth fastest growing city in the world. And as the West and the U.S. has dumped billions of dollars into the city, um, this class of people who sort of float from international disaster to international disaster have gone there to soak a lot of it up. And I was sort of, I was fascinated by this boomtown culture, which reminded me of my childhood reading of frontier narratives. You have somebody strike gold, a town is built, and all of a sudden you have your mercenaries show up. You have your 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 your, your society builders who you know they want to build a company, they want to build a business, they want to educate people, and your your neo-colonial people, your colonial people who want to build schools, build churches, uh, tame the culture. You start having all these people flood in. And there's a lot of myth-making going on. These are all people who see themselves as the founders of this new world. And I was sort of fascinated by that, by the degree to which a lot of the people I met in Kabul at that time spoke that way, with this sort of grandiose sense of their mission. Um, and with very little self-awareness of how, how truly colonial um, their discourse was. And so this book... Um, is an exploration of that, and it um, it circles around um, four people who disappear in a car bomb, and it goes into their stories and sort of tries to understand the meaning of um, the meaning of victimhood to a certain degree, and the meaning of agency um, in a place like this. I'll read the opening two pages, then I'll jump to another scene. Winter was premonition. We knew something was going to happen. We saw it in the desolation and poverty, the gusting indeterminate scraps, the men pushing trash carts, their figures like engravings of the plague, heads wrapped in tattered kefiyas, or the smog of traffic, wood fires and diesel generators, the effluvium of four million souls desperate to heat concrete and earthen homes, mixing with dust in the thin, chill mountain air, and hanging over the city in blunt journalistic metaphors, shrouds, palls, and of course veils. Snow fell, churned into mud that redded and froze. Pipes burst, handymen returned to our doors, grim and extortionate like doctors. Despite our predictions, the country became so inhospitable that the war itself ground to a halt, the passes closed, the Taliban waiting. As we edged into spring, storms tottered on the horizon and swept down over the rooftops without precipitation, gusts scouring up filth, lifting it in long, drifting curtains the color of distant rain. At last the downpours came, hailstones as big as bullets, gutters gorged, streets flooded, a season of trash and excrement rising to the surface. Then the roses bloomed, we sighed, even sunbathed, and the fighting season began again. On the night of the attack, spring was still more than a month away, and the taxi carrying Alexandra, Tam, and me worked its way over ice and gouged earth, its shocks creaking, the street, the street dark until we came to the compound's red metal gate. Alexandra had asked us to join her as moral support because she was meeting a man at a party, a security contractor and former soldier. In our circle, there was no less appealing object of desire. No one I knew dated military contractors. The ratio of women to men was so in favor of the former that, for an evening's company, they could pull from a bevy of preening journalists and aid workers. 
If a lesser woman had revealed interest in a mercenary, we'd have mocked her, but Alexandra was so assured in private that her attractions seemed like parlor intrigue. She was a human rights lawyer who defended women in prisons, putting in 12-hour days to file reports of abuse. She told us about girls incarcerated for fleeing forced marriages and how they'd repeatedly given birth during their years behind bars. At parties, she cited studies to diplomats and reporters, naming those in the government intent on rolling back protections for women and those crusading for them. She spoke so decisively that we forgot she'd only just arrived and had learned everything from books and NGO reports. Though I doubt anyone thought of her as an imposter, we all wondered if her taste in men proved a lack of values and a true nature aligned with the occupation we criticized. America's number one export to Afghanistan, Tam once declared at a dinner, is its rednecks. <clears throat> I'm going to skip ahead to an expat party. Um, where they have an indoor greenhouse and they're exploring some old furniture. In Afghanistan, there are a lot of weapons lying around. It's not that unusual to be cleaning a house and to find a grenade or an old Kalashnikov or some bullets. So this is a scene where um, they're looking at some old furniture and um, people get very dramatic. You know, sometimes expat life isn't actually as exciting as it's supposed to be, so they, they all get dramatic and make a big deal of this. I may pause occasionally to explain the characters as we go. So looking at a bunch of old furniture. Can you hear me okay, by the way? Yeah, all right. But this furniture is really old, Alexandra said. She opened a cabinet, rows of pigeonholes crammed with fusty yellow papers. We began pulling them out, looking at news clippings from the late 70s and 80s from the Soviet period and the Civil War. I should write a piece about this cabinet, Tam said. Holly reached to one of the upper pigeonholes, a row of what might be receipts was stuffed in like a cork. She removed them, felt around inside, and brought out a dusty sphere whose rugged surface resembled chunky tire treads. Oh my God, she said. Oh fuck, oh my God, what do I do? Don't move, Tam told her, and cupped her hands just slowly tipping into my hands. Holly did as she was told. She backed away and then ran into the house, shouting, we found a grenade, we found a grenade. People lined the hallway as Tam marched through with the pomp of one bearing a Fabergé egg. In the greenhouse's winter light, she placed the grenade in the grass. Holly was talking quickly to Paul. I just kind of grabbed it. I had no idea. I mean, the pin could have fallen out. Expats often did this, seeing danger constantly, heightening encounters with the police by speaking loudly, waving their hands, getting flustered. If a ministry was attacked, they talked about every time they'd been there. In the expat bubble, living in a war zone was less dramatic than they'd expected, and they were compensating. Justin stood by the doorway alone, his jacket on, his cell to his ear. Justin's a born-again Christian from Louisiana. who's a teacher there. Idris, he said, come inside. Maybe you can help us. Idris is his student who also doubles as his driver. Everyone was crouched as if the grenade had fallen from one of the potted trees, a cubist avocado. Idris came inside wearing a snug new leather jacket. The cold had left two pink thumbprints on his cheeks. He walked to the center of the small crowd. It is a Russian grenade, an old one. These are known for being very fair weapons. You mean because they're effective, Paul asked? No, because sometimes they blow up your enemy. Sometimes when you pull the pin, they blow you up. They do not pick sides. People laughed and sat back on their heels or cross-legged in the grass. The mood had shifted. Expats, expats loved a humorist who can make light of the war. How do you know this, Paul asked. You're too young to have been in the army. Actually, Idris said I am too old. They like their recruits fresh and tender. Everyone laughed again. Most of the wine was gone, and sensing he had an audience, Idris stood a little straighter, his smile bringing out his youth and easing his angular features. 
Afghans know grenades the way Americans know cars, he told them. Tam, she's a know-it-all. Tam interrupted to say she'd read that Soviet grenades had different fuse systems. The average delay was 3.5 to 4 seconds, but some exploded immediately for use in booby traps. Idris cocked his head in Holly's direction. Yes, it was a 30-year-old booby trap. The string tied to the pin must have rotted off. Oh, my God, Holly said and held up her hands as if she'd touched filth. After the laughter subsided, Idris reassured her this wasn't true. It's not a booby trap. These used to be as common as pomegranates. During the Civil War, when it was very bad here, I lived with my uncle in Lachman province, and he taught me how to fish with them. How bucolic, Paul said. We would build a dam with rocks, Idris told them, to stop the fish. Then we'd throw in the grenade or shoot in an RPG, and we'd all hide. We got sometimes a hundred fish, enough for the whole village. But we had to be careful of the pieces of metal in the fish. The, shaka, the shrapnel, Tam said. Yes, thank you, the shrapnel. Idris flushed a little and glanced at Holly. Dynamite is much better and easier and cheaper now that Afghanistan has used up most of its grenades. Where do you get dynamite, Holly asked. Everywhere, in any bazaar. A stick is maybe one dollar. People make it with fertilizer. How comforting, Paul chimed in. You do not have to hide as much from dynamite. So many Afghans use it. Or electricity. Electricity, several people said at once. Yes, you take a generator and put the wires in the river. But fishing like this is illegal now. Too many people were, getting, were electrocuting their neighbors. One man would be taking a bath and his neighbor would put the wires in. He didn't look first, Paul asked. People get very hungry, Idris told him. After another burst of laughter, the conversation shifted away from Idris. Expats talking among themselves. He moved closer to Holly. I heard him ask what she did, and she described her NGO, the street dogs they took in, nurtured, and flew to the United States for adoption. Oh, he said, the color draining from his cheeks. And what do you do, she asked, cocking her head, trying to interpret his reaction. I am, he faltered, a jack of all trades, but I am trying to be a student. Inshallah, I will someday join your dogs in America. Thank you. Hi, thank you all for coming. Is this okay? All right. It's exciting to be here. Um, it's the first time that I'm going to be reading from the new collection, so it's fun. Uh, so in working on this um, collection, it was different than a lot of what I had written before, and I wanted, after having worked on a book that focused very much on the body and women's bodies, I wanted to try uh, focusing outward, because it's something that I've always been interested in doing in my writing, but I hadn't done a sustained project in it. And so around the time I was thinking of doing this, um, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened in the Gulf. Uh, and like a lot of us, I was just drawn to all of that, you know, the, the spill cam and seeing the the actual rig um, when it was on fire. So I started working on it in the same way that I'd often written, which is researching things from books, because I'm a poet and that makes me comfortable. Um, but after a while, I felt like, well, I need to talk to people. I need to go there and see it. And I was lucky enough to get some grants that allowed me to travel to Louisiana and the Gulf. and. Um, I interviewed people, spoke with um, people, visited, um, just saw what had happened to the, the landscape there. And so the book developed in a way that was very different than I had um, just anything I had done before. So 
In the course of the collection, it's almost like the poet became um, a character to a certain extent. And so I'm going to read some of the poems that connect to that and to um, my visit to the Gulf area. The first poem is Nemesine to the Poet, and Nemesine is the goddess of memory. For you, memory is but an oil lamp to snuff, left to smoke, diademed by Earth's velvet mantle. So easy for you to ignore, hadal press of sea, the open veins, plumes, how they wheel like a maelstrom up and down. My sight spills through waves of old blown glass. I'm not permitted to turn pillow to cheek and wait for sleep to find me. I'm not permitted to learn how not to look. Elegy sung in dirt after the New York Times image of the deep water horizons collapse into the sea. Feather veined, the smoke flows up black-blooded as the oil plumes that will soon unwind below. Boats spray forth arcs of salted water suspended by the camera shutter. Before evening, this image, viral elegy, will echo across screen and page. I cannot look. No, I am the poet of the eye filled with dirt, mouth shut. But tell me, who among you could conjure the gift at such depths of seeing in the dark? The next poem um, is uh, a scene in Grand Isle, Louisiana in 2010, um, shortly after the, the spill. Um, even a year later when I would go to the beach, there were just um, tar balls and, and things closed. Uh, but what's weird is, of course, there were still kids and tourists playing in the water. Um, so, Black Horizon. Like ribbons of kelp, they wash up, bark black and stretching far as the eye can see. Boys sway in the waves, skin sheened in oil as they toss the tar balls. A quick game of pickup. On the shore, cleanup crews weave a path between beach towels, hazmat suited, shovel and plastic bag in hand. It never fails to shock, dark pools oiling sands of blinding white. I load my open palms with them, testing their heft. These scales cannot be balanced, and always more cresting the waves, merciful as death. One of the people I spoke to um, a year after the spill uh, was this man named Wilbert Collins, and he owned an oyster company, um, and they had been really well-known. They supplied oysters to all sorts of fancy restaurants. Um, but now, um, not just the spill, but they... Um, tried releasing a bunch of fresh water to get rid of the oil, and in the process, the, the fresh water killed the oyster beds. So it's a combination of two things that um, happened. And so there's three poems that are all connected um, about this visit with him. Field Note, 2011, for Wilbert, for Wilbert Collins, Golden Meadow, Louisiana. I raised my camera, spinning its iris, focus shuddered and caught. 
Not a glyph hollowed out, but a voice written in light. Collins Oyster Company, out of business after 90 years because of BP's oil and Governor Jindal's fresh water. Sweat darkens my shirt, shape of a hand pressing. To my right, Route One's traffic hurdles past. 90 years, a man shouts and idles his car, points to the sign. My father's out back, go talk to him. The fresh water was as bad as the oil, Collins says of attempts to force oil from the marshes. His dining room turned war room, three card tables pushed together and a wall papered floor to ceiling in maps. Jefferson Parish's oyster lease lines, the Collins beds thumbtacked red. Report. More than 60% of oysters in one Louisiana bay are dead as a result of the release of fresh water. He will reseed the beds this year. In 15 more, maybe, the oysters will be back. I nod, pivoting, then stop. Opposite the charts hangs a photo, pre-spill. Collins on the Browden Trage's deck, head tipped to the sky. A typical haul, he tells me. I zoom in, filling the viewfinder. That day's dredge of mollusks, I never imagined so many, heaped in piles higher than his knees. He poses for me, now empty deck behind him, arm braced on a stanchion. Both eyes sink into his cap's angled shadows. At his feet, the split shelves of last year opalesce, a hollowed light. I don't have anything else to do, he says when I thank him. I offered to show them all my dead oysters. They don't want to see it. I know, it's not in our nature. I owe him more than this utterance unheard, must learn at last to look. One of the interesting things um, when I was down there was that I brought a camera, because at one point I was uh, creating a sort of digital presentation of, so, which used photography, you know, photographs and stuff in it. And the camera made such a difference. You know, his son pulled over and told me to go talk to him, in part because with the camera, there was this sense of like, oh, this is going to be seen and documented. Um, so it's an interesting experience. Uh, the last poem um, is again, it's in sections, um, but Part of it comes from this visit I made to Tiger Pass Seafood, um, which is, was another big seafood uh, provider, shrimp in that case. Elegy written in oil. I steer the rental car down a road that doesn't appear on any map. Bayous cut a brown-edged lace around me, once lush fields, once lush green fields matted and manged. Count the casualties. Sargassum and Spartina grass, bald cypress, tupelo gum, wax myrtles and black mangroves, thick beds of seagrass. As if by an artist's crude masked strokes, the pelican's beak is daub, is plaster. She rises from the bay's water, limbs out and hung in tatters of oil. Our angel, wings heavy and mouth cast open always. She is scarved, blind and deaf, tarped mute. Lignite lime and shale, salt sheeted, sanded stone, 
No, no, go not to Barataria Bay like a broad marled bowl. The biologist's rule of thumb, at least 10 dead for every one found. By August, more than 2,000 oil-soaked pelicans had been picked up dead or dying. Another 1,200 were found dead after eating fish contaminated by oil. Cleanup workers report, we throw them back. If we kept all the dead fish and birds, we'd have mountains of both. We throw them back. Tiger Pass Seafood, Louisiana. Daniel Moreau and his men idle on deck, stitching net. Boats can't afford to go out, he explains. Gas costs. No white shrimp this year, just balls of oil. We've seen bad seasons and we've pulled it out. We can't pull it out this time. He offers me a satsuma to stay for lunch. The two men left working for him now share a room above the office. Do you feel forgotten, I ask. A good person helps people, he says. Adjust the visor on his cap. Helicoptered to Fort Jackson, starved keen, the bird smothered within her own feathered skin. Washed in dawn, they IV'd, then released her back to a sea smeared the color of mud, of old blood. The dirt road ends. I lower my window. In the distance, a truck's engine, then nothing. I can't hear the bugs. I don't see the birds. Thank you. I owe Daniel and Patrick and everyone at Milkweed a large debt of gratitude, and in part, if not wholly, because they're willing to publish these very idiosyncratic, eccentric books of so-called criticism that I do that I think uh, would be published truly nowhere else. Um, and as I was thinking about what Daniel said at the beginning of this reading, this ecological mission uh, for which milkweed is rightly celebrated, um, that there's a, an extraordinary capaciousness, a multifaceted quality to how milkweed uh, demonstrates that ideal. And, and part of that ideal includes uh, providing ways uh, that remind us that reading is itself a vital activity um, and protects these possibilities of realization that can occur in no other way, so that returning to a book such as Moby Dick or looking at Thoreau or Dickinson um, become as much an effort at preservation uh, as any other activity might be. Um, so I'm very grateful to um, be on this list and then inside that, I think, truly generous and ambitious vision. The most recent unpublishable book I'm publishing with Milkweed is called A Quiet Book, and it takes as its hope a very simple-seeming thing, which is originally, in my thought, to uh, 100 times return, in a certain sense, to the very same concern, this idea not simply of quiet, but of silence, of grief, of death, of the various forms of oblivion that so strangely, when properly seen, 
don't simply deny meaning or language, but exist complexly within the life of language, this unspeakable thing, this inspiring point that, as we all know, when you try to grab it, has a profound habit of disappearing. Um, that's what I wanted to pay attention to and, and see what it would do to have this deliberate discipline for two, now really going on three years, of returning to the same concern, turning over and over again, not looking away and to see what would fall onto the page. Um, I'm going to start by reading a poem very tied to the, the short essay I'm going to read, uh, not in a quiet book. Um, so I lied to Daniel and I said, that I was reading from it, or partially lied, um, which seems like a kind of unspeakable thing, too. Uh, this poem begins and ends with ellipses, and, and I mention it um, because, in some ways, I imagine it as a uh, defin definition going on eternally that the frequency of the poem catches for a little bit. Um, so imagine that uh, somehow we've caught this particular kind of signal. Uh, it takes as its inspiration a book I was reading uh, in the dark hours of the morning uh, by Diogenes Laertes titled The Lives of Eminent Philosophers, um, most of which aren't any longer that eminent, oddly enough. Centuries have erased them, and not only erased our memory of those philosophers, but each little section would end with a book, sometimes 60, 70 books that these philosophers wrote, none of which, or very few of which, have survived. And many of these books are repeated topics for philosophers over the centuries. Um, and the one that this poem takes its title from is On the Soul. Is always what is, is within life, but life cannot touch it. Is afraid or not when fear creeps from distant shadows over the body, is how it is with intelligence or not of any opinion. The thorn numb or is it dumb? What is sharp but is what feels no pain? Is pleasure its solitude or is it like light woven through a leaf? a sympathy in blood, or the erection, or a symphony before the violin string by rosin pulls the rose through the air, or is the rose of infinite petals, the rose of no one's sleep, is the doves in the columbarium, is a nest not an urn, not an urn, is a window holding itself open in space, is lost treatise on Atlantis, is Atlantis itself, is the horse galloping in a cloud called thunder, or is it in the long grass the fawn asleep long past her mother who has gone, is a neighbor of wisdom, is a chariot driven by a nameless man, is synapse or cul-de-sac, or hollow below the boulder rolling down, is the eyes of the gorgon on a shield, or eyes behind closed lids when the sun lights pink the skin as it lights a late cloud up, or the lightning lacing the thunderhead through, self-lit, self-illuminating, self-corrupting, self-destroying, is a lion who has an idea instead of teeth, is a logic that learns to hate the ratios, is a radio turned to no station, is static, is a sock clinging to a shirt in heaven, is a double knot, a careful
playful child ties loosening all day as she runs as a string trying to tie itself into a knot as a purifying machine turning in circles centripetal force spin cycle centrifuge is a circumference fleeing apocryphal centers is arc asymptote on the y-axis where in the infinitesimal the meadow grows wild grows wide and those roots digging down dangle out the simple plane hovering there in nothing out past Pluto reaching backwards to the sun so one of the things that's occupied my imagination during the writing of a quiet book and before are those stories of eternity in which uh, you repeat a certain aspect, an essential aspect of your life forever. I had once imagined myself as, as a, an, in an eternal condition of clapping all the time for everything. Um, then something today, as I was in another panel and you hear the applause from another room, I thought, oh, it might be that, actually. <laughs> um, but when I was in fifth grade, it's an embarrassing memory. Um, I had to give an oral book report uh, in front of all my classmates and my teacher. And I was giving a report, I had written it out, I was a diligent student, um, had written it out, but the book had made me really sad. And in the midst of reciting my book report, I broke down in tears in front of everyone. And uh, it could be I do that after I die over and over again. Um, and the, the guise of this, the frame of it is, is, is that kind of vision. Uh, the title is Suke, which is the Greek word for soul from which we get our psyche. Suke. Teacher, this is my book report on the soul. I promise not to start crying in front of the class like I did last time with my book report on the discovery of the mind. The word psychology, which speaks so loudly in our ears now of the mind and its working, bears little resemblance to the Greek suke from which it derived. The soul didn't think or think about thinking. It wasn't psychological. It didn't really resemble you. It wasn't an identity. Some say the soul was first discovered in dreams the image there of one like ourselves who wanders free and away from the dreamer. The old poets considered it possible that the man in the dream experiences the same mystery when his roaming ends and he falls asleep, an act which is no more than our own waking, and what fills our days is to him the vision of his soul. Homer mentions suke only when the life of the man is threatened. Without suke, he cannot survive. To go to war is to risk your suke. To kill Hector is to win his suke. When you swoon, suke leaves your body. Then a mist comes on your eyes. And if suke returns, you're still alive. You know about swooning, right? It's when someone pulls a spear from your thigh and out the wound for a moment, your soul flies away. If it doesn't come back, you've swooned to death. Not exactly breath, suke is also not exactly body, though Homer says there is a soul of the lungs and a soul of the heart. Often, suke is used interchangeably with head, and so some scholars believe the soul is located there, 
Hence, in confusion, the holding of one's head, and so in sorrow. And so, too, of those rumors about Socrates, that when he sneezed, his soul was speaking to him from outside himself. But all we know for certain about the location of the soul comes from the ways in which, as told in poems, it leaves the body, it flies away from limbs, it leaves through the mouth, from the nose, from the chest, or a wound in the flank. The soul cannot reside in the dead body. It can't die with it, but must seek an afterlife. If the soul leaves early, the body gets ill or pines away and dies of longing. The link to breath, suke, to sukine, to blow out or to breathe, means that the soul is something always coming into us and leaving us, and is not only never properly our own, but in some ways belongs to everyone else. I like to think the soul hovers there on the lips, fanning with a winnowing blade the air into the lungs and later guiding out the words the singer sings. Another word, sukosos, cooling, means the soul keeps the body from the fever of itself and having a soul stops us from burning up. A deeper sleep than sleep, but not the sleep of death. Sometimes you come across a man or a woman lying on the ground or collapsed on the floor of a grocery store. And though they don't breathe over days and even weeks, the body doesn't corrupt until one day, without any sign preceding the miracle, he or she stands up and tells you the tale of the adventure, having traveled to Metapontum and ordered the people there to build a temple to Apollo or finding a student in his home to explain some philosophic point that when in the class the question had been asked, the answer hadn't been known. The soul lets some people be in two places at once, of as, uh, as of Pythagoras, seen at Metapontum and Croton on the same day. Other times the soul flies out the mouth in the shape of a raven and returns as a man, scavenger, trickster, bird of shadow, associated in the undercurrent of thought with water that comes falling to earth after the bird calls. There is a kind of memory that doesn't think or thinks it doesn't think, and another kind of memory that is the eye of the soul, which is memory that thinks. The soul isn't thinking, but it sees through thinking, as when writing this report, I looked up and out the window, except then my thinking was in my head, and for the soul, the thinking is the window. To demonstrate his point, a teacher brings his class outside and, taking a wand which draws the soul out of the body, strikes a boy with the wand, draws out his soul, and guides it far away where it stands by itself. And then the teacher asks his class to beat the body of the boy, which they do. And the boy seems not to feel a thing. And when the teacher touches the body again with the wand, the boy wakes up unharmed. Not different aspects of soul, but different souls altogether exist along with suke. Thumos feels for us all we feel, spirit that collects and is source of all emotion, and it lives in the chest. 
but in moments of great fear can move about within the body but seldom flees it, as when seeing Hector dragged by Achilles around the walls of Troy, Andromache's Thumos leaves her heart and moves to her fingers, seeking some way to escape the horror she feels at her husband's death, but the soul cannot leave, and she wakes from her faint, having been nowhere else but scared behind the walls of Troy. Menos quickens into spear-sharp strength the sense of purpose that in feeling fear might quail. It hopes only to act, not to receive. It can be breathed into you by a god who wants you to act on her behalf to kill who she wants to be killed. It can madden the senses into shields. And when it leaves, you might find yourself looking at your hands, saying to your hands, what have you done? talking to your hands as if they were not a part of you, as if they had acted on their own, separate from the body to which they are attached. But it isn't true. You did these things with your hands. All I've spoken of so far is the living soul, and though I know my time is almost up, there's still the dead soul to discuss, and I hope my grade won't suffer for speaking too long. Most often, we obscure our sense of the soul by the assumptions we carry within us about it. And when we want to describe as best we can our own soul, instead we discover we have outlined an idea we've long held, given to us we know not by whom. And rather than a theory of the holy dark emptiness, we've circumscribed a vacuum with our breath. And what would have been more honest after speaking out loud all those words while the audience nodded off into partial dreams would have been to put my hand against my throat to feel the vibration there humming beneath the words. After death, mostly the soul continues as it had been, but where before there had been body, now there is only shadow or shade, or in rare cases, a snake. Mostly the soul can move and speak just as before, but sometimes it cannot and can only flit and squeak. Door on an old hinge, mouse. As if the soul will their vermifuge, Achilles worries that Patroclus' soul loosened and removed to Hades will allow the magnets, maggots to defile his body. Thumos at death leaves the lip or limbs, and as does breath into the larger air, diffuses with no trace into the ether. But the suke, which, when alive, none have a thought of, none notice, in death bears the thoughts and wants, the fears and hopes that pervaded the mind of the one now gone, who no longer bearing the burden of her own life leaves it for the soul to bear, a shadow without a heart who carries the heart's hard cares. The connection between shadow and soul is still in need of systematic, systematic inquiry. But every time you stop to question a shadow, you find you're talking once again to yourself. So the categories remain obscure. Aristotle claimed suke also meant butterfly, and though no evidence exists that the soul transforming from life to death became a butterfly, to begin in hunger insatiable, to fall asleep and then to wake winged and hungerless, speak so hopefully to what, before battle or suddenly taken ill, one might wish death to be, of the precipitous decline in butterfly populations beyond the sorrow of less beauty. Now there is this fear 
that the dead have begun to lose even their souls, and that brief shadow beneath the wings as the butterfly sips gone missing means the afterlife has begun to shut down. The dead bear the wounds that killed them. They find the same jokes funny, but have heard Uh, but have a hard time laughing. Their voices don't work the same, and they move strangely, flitting as a moth does before light or a butterfly, which seems to be in two places at once, as it lands and then lands again on the same bloom. The funeral rites tend to take a few days to complete, and during that time the soul is neither uh, neither in earth nor in Hades. On an urn made in the 6th century and recently exhumed, a small armored man stands next to the fallen Patroclus and written next to the homunculus, the word suke. The soul waits silently for the body to be buried or burned, not mourning among the mourners, but standing patient beside them, witness the rites of which he is the subject, delayed in their cries, caught in the no time between the day of death and eternity, a kind of waiting room in the dust. Some who die never get to be dead, children, adolescents, brides and youths unwed, tender maidens with grief and yet fresh at heart, grooms who, stepping over the threshold of the bedroom, pass away as the torch is lit. The list is long. Some scholars say such souls live in the suburbs of hell, home in the outskirts, which is never a home, and others ascribe them to no place at all, some honored as God, some forgotten, some remembered only in the burning of grain, the pouring of blood, the fragrance of the bitten fruit, and some abandoned to the absence of lost breath and never remembered at all. Some souls even forget themselves. Some might be called ghosts. On the day of the great festival, when the earthenware jars of a new wine were to be opened, and even the most misanthropic of men would dine with another, the ghosts would wander the city and the fields. Men and women would chew the leaves of the buckthorn, reputed to be good for warding away apparitions. And after the feast, when normally couches would be shared and wine drunk, each man now sat alone and drank his jug of wine as fast as he could in complete silence. No one understands the silence, not the men and women, not the ghosts. But for most of the dead, burial rites completed, life just goes on. Not that the dead don't know they're dead, they do. But repeating the same actions as in life, it's easy to forget for a time the nature of doom until one looks down and sees the wound. But it's easy to forget Easy to walk back into the room as if nothing has changed. Easy to begin again what has already happened, to think it the first time, what has never ceased to be done. Teacher, 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 this is my book report on the soul. I promise not to start crying in front of the class like I did last time with my book report on the discovery of the mind.
Um, I'm very grateful to be able to pinch hit this afternoon and grateful to Daniel and Milkweed and to be a part of this family of powerfully diverse and gorgeous voices. Um, I also appreciate Milkweed's mission for expanding ecological consciousness, which with every passing day seems even more fiercely necessary. Um, I'm going to read um, a selection then. It is maybe somewhat ecologically or eco-critically influenced today in honor of that mission. Um, I'm going to begin with a short lyric flash essay uh, that kind of toggles between um, maybe some uh, ecological concerns. It's, uh, it's uh, been working on a series of essays that uh, breaks down maybe the false binary between nature and technology. Um, so this is called Swarm. One, a knot of snakes. Swarm sounds like warm, with the serpentine arabesque of a hiss spiraling around the word. Like the heat-sleepy tangled knotwork of baby garter snakes, languorously coiling and uncoiling, corded shoelaces tying and untying themselves on a sun-baked concrete sidewalk. The hiss, a slight edge surrounding the protective bubble of communion to those hilled within the collective safety of the swarm. Swarm rhymes with warm, as if to convey a sense of threat. Think of the 1978 sci-fi disaster movie, The Swarm, starring Michael Caine and Catherine Ross, in which a swarm of deadly African bees terrorizes American cities. But it also sounds like sworn, as if to convey agency, intent, determination. Two, a wake of turkey vultures. Late summer afternoon and turkey vultures parabola the vermilion water tower off downtown Main Street, casting smooth shadows on concrete like sleek, dark fish. They like to catch the updrafts from the river bluffs to kettle and roost in the old water tower, sometimes aggregating into a swarm of as many as 60 or 70 at a time. Some vermilionaires find the tricky vultures off-putting, what with their carry-on hungry ways, their featherless and slightly grizzled red-fleshed heads, and their frankly disgusting defense mechanism of vomiting up toxic stomach acids when threatened. But when they fly, they're aerodynamically majestic, long-feathered dihedrals, silver shimmer of secondary feathers. Maybe it's because I'm half Japanese, but what I adore, but I adore large aggregations of animals, particularly when they intersect interestingly with humans. I'm charmed by the miniature spotted sika deer in Nara, Japan, for example, that have overrun the park and taken over the streets of the city, stalling traffic, lounging on the sidewalks, appropriating sandwiches from tourists, and nuzzling through purses and pockets for potential treats. Once considered so sacred, the deer are nationally protected, and although increasingly rude about food, most have learned to bow after receiving or stealing a treat. In addition to Nara Park, Japan is also home to 11 cat islands, overrun by roving armies of cats, the most famous of which, Aoshima, seems to be a swirl with marmalade tabbies. 
Or there's Zhao Fox Village in the Miyagi Prefecture, which is sanctuary to over six species of friendly, very clever, and very mischievous foxes. Or there's also Okushima, Japan's Rabbit Island, where visitors can tour a defunct mustard gas factory prior to being swarmed by hordes of gregarious bunnies. In a popular Facebook meme, a young Japanese woman is shown running down a path while being chased by a seemingly infinite mob of exceedingly enthusiastic rabbits. And so when the local newspaper, the Vermilion Plain Talk, reports that a new smoothly bulbous water tower is being built over by the Walmart Supercenter, I'm quick to sign the Save the Old Vermilion Water Tower petition. Not only because the water tower is over 100 years old and interesting from a historical preservation standpoint, but because I love the swarms of turkey vultures that come to roost on the old water tower. Maybe a turkey vulture roost is not as cute or kawaii as an island of rabbits or a fox sanctuary, but still, perhaps in time, it could become its own quirky local attraction. Three, a pod of walruses. Unusual aggregations of animals can also sometimes function as a warning of ecological imbalance. When a massive swarm of walruses, over 35,000 of them, began congregating on the beaches of a barrier island near Point Lay in northwest Alaska this fall, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration warned that this anomalous haul-out was due to loss of sea ice in offshore areas, serving as yet another harbinger of rapid global warming and climate change. The aerial photographs of the walruses swarming the beach are stunningly disturbing. The sand completely covered in a jostling, portly corpulence of throbbing walrus flesh, punctuated by pair after pair of dangerous ivory tusks. Not surprisingly, numerous walrus corpses were left behind, apparently caused by stampede. Four, a fever of stingrays. From the air, like flickering chips of formica. From below, a swarm of Pokemon cute anime smiley faces. Their bodies mimicking softly undulant waves. Or sometimes winging their pectoral fins like birds. Fin tips flicking through the surface of the water like the upflipped triangular corners of galette dough. The movement too cool and smooth to evoke a fever, and so the group name must be because of the serrated barbs on their tails that lash up and release venom when stingrays are surprised or startled from above. Symptoms for stingray envenomation include diaphoresis, nausea, cardiac arrhythmias, tremors, skin rash, headache, delirium, fever, hypertension, syncope, anxiety. In poetry circles, the names of, for groups of animals in the a blank of blank construction has perhaps become somewhat outré, if not downright cliched. But still, a fever of stingrays. Maybe it's now my favorite ever group name for animals. Followed closely by a conspiracy of lemurs, which sounds vaguely like the name of an art rock noise band. If you Google conspiracy of lemurs, photographs of lemurs nested and stacked next to and on top of one another come up, gazing at the camera with their strikingly intense black pupil-studded amber eyes. Their tails are very pleasingly stripy. 
I once lived with a lover who was shy and withdrawn in public, but hilariously gregarious in private. He was clever with accents and could do hysterical impersonations of celebrities and cartoon characters. Sometimes he would pretend to be the crocodile hunter Steve Irwin, dangling one of our cat's stripy tails swishing over a pretend crocodile. Crikey, he'd exclaim, what a beauty, let's feed it some chicken. Steve Irwin died in 2006 in a freak stingray accident when he startled an Australian bull ray from above while snorkeling. Stingrays typically like to camouflage themselves in the sand, alert to the natural electrical charges of their potential prey with electrical sensors around their mouths called ampullae of Lorenzini. I feel like this is a ridiculously beautiful name for electrical sensors. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with this. Maybe it's that the swarm of neurons startled by a fight or flight response can make even a gentle camouflaging creature lash out with a barb to the heart. Maybe it's that to swim in a fever of stingrays could be quite beautiful and not as dangerous as stepping on one. Maybe it's that I secretly covet ampullae of Lorenzini. Five, hive mind. At first, in the YouTube meme circulating on Facebook, it appears to be a large grayish snake slowly making its way across a sidewalk. But on second glance, it's much too translucent to be a snake and something isn't right in the way it moves, too slow, too much of a pulsing. It moves like a gigantic worm. Then the shock of the video camera zooming in to reveal that the gargantuan worm is made up of hundreds of tiny, noodle, shiny larvae, collaborating to migrate in unison, like a roving meta-narrative, like an aggradation of metadata. Further Googling reveals that the ribbon-like mass is made up of dark-winged fungus gnat larvae, Entomologists don't understand the aggregating behavior of the larvae, but they're completely, but they're apparently considered useful pests in both greenhouses and mushroom cellars. Harmless, even beneficial, yet still the spectacle both fascinates and unnerves. Much like the viral meme of the male seahorse woofing out clouds of tiny baby seahorses from his abdomen, like a series of sneezes expelling clouds of rhinoviruses. How much of the world organizes or patterns itself using an Ouroboros-like feedback loop? The epically spiraling tornadic whorls of starlings in a murmuration? The dark cloud of gnats? The cluster of buffleheads scooting low over the water like a black and white silk scarf turning itself inside out? And the schooling behavior of fish all potentially reveal a universal self-organizing process of attraction, repulsion, alignment, and searching by which a single organism functions collaboratively within the aggregate. Interestingly, the same self-organizing feedback loop may also determine how individual cells adapt themselves to environment-specific conditions. How much of one thing mirrors another? Apparently, the behavior of honeybee colonies mimics the behavior of neurons in primate brains when it comes to decision-making processes, such as scouting out, establishing a quorum, and then relocating to a new nest site. 
For example, scout bees perform waggle dances to introduce input about desirable nest sites, while sender scout bees, responsible for coordinating the move to the new nest site, send stop signals to the waggle dancers by tapping them on the head and emitting a short buzz. These stop signals function analogously to cross-inhibition signals in primate brains, thereby allowing neurons to weigh input from, compare, and select from different alternatives before establishing a quorum and arriving at a decision. Attraction, repulsion, alignment, searching. How do we swarm, search, flock, murmur, pod, clat, wake, knot, squirm, and fever in our virtual apiaries and aviaries of social networks such as Facebook and Twitter? How much of the world organizes or patterns itself using an Ouroboros-like feedback loop? How much of one thing mirrors another? Even now, your neurons flocking to this and attracted to that swarm of honeybees seeking out a new me. And I'll finish up with one poem from uh, Tsunami versus the uh, Fukushima 50, uh, which um, is a project that's intended to uh, commemorate the uh, Tohoku tsunami and Fukushima disaster, which is still ongoing um, in that uh, people from the no-go zone are still unable to return to their homes and are still living in temporary housing. Um, I created a supervillainess named uh, Tsunami, who's sort of like Magneto from the X-Men. I'm drawing on the trope of comics as a way of exploring or um, commemorating uh, this disaster and in the way that uh, Magneto was created through um, the Holocaust uh, as a trauma that created his um, superpowers, uh, Tsunami is created by the fault line um, as the trauma and the ocean floor that causes her to uh, rise. Um, the Tsunami poems are then um, juxtaposed with uh, dramatic monologues in the voices of fictional survivors. Um, so this is a survivor who I'm calling my Mothra, and um, maybe as some of you uh, remember the Godzilla movies or uh, comics, um, after the dropping of the atomic bombs in Japan at the end of the World War II, um, the monsters rose um, on Monster Island. Uh, Mothra is a giant moth, um, and she is always summoned by a pair of tiny Japanese singing twins. Um, and in this monologue, I envision um, a young woman who is pregnant with twins who's been evacuated. Mothra flies again. I knew it was a bad omen when silk moth cocoons hung unhatched like stillborn husks from the mulberry trees. Imagos furled tight as parasols crumbling to ash and dust inside. But still, I felt so lucky to have survived the tsunami I felt so lucky to be alive after three reactor meltdowns. Daijobu, said Mayor Norio Kano. Daijobu, echoed the village officials. Everything was fine, fine, fine. For weeks, everything was Daijobu, while our village was irradiated. The soil, the water, the produce, the dust particles, the rain. 
Three months later, Itate was a ghost town crumbling to dust, infested with mold and vermin, and we had become part of the nuclear diaspora. Now we stay in prefab shelters assigned to us in Date City, waiting for cleanup workers to scrape up Itate's farmland topsoil, sealing it into bags no one wants to handle like too hot sweet potatoes. And when the high-pressure washers that were promised never arrived, the workers began scrubbing off contaminants using only paper towels. How can we ever go back there? At night, I lie awake and unpack my worries like wooden kokeshi dolls nested one inside the other. What if, what if, what if my heart clangs inside my chest, then waits with held breath for the twin girls nested inside me to shift or twist or kick and reply within their amniotic fluid? I try not to think of the cocoons shriveling on the vine, the weeks I unknowingly expose my twins, small as a pair of bing cherries, to radioactive contamination while believing everything was daijobu. Instead, I get up and watch late-night kaiju movies on television, the ones my fathers used to love, all of the monsters rising one by one on Monster Island. Gojira, Redon, Jigan, Ebira. Last night, I saw a movie about Hedora, the smog monster, who fell to Earth from outer space in a cloud of toxic spores. While tonight, I doze on the sofa as Mosura is summoned by her twin fairy priestesses who sing for her when they're in danger. How fiercely she defends them with her electric beam antenna, her deadly lightning bolts, the scatter of poisonous yellow shed from the scales on her wings. When I wake, the light is harsh, my neck a sore bent stem, and the red ambulance melody of my shobijin, my small beauties, sirens, a distress call inside me. Mosura, ya Mosura. Thank you. Thank you all very much. I'm very humbled and proud at the same time. We have two minutes if there's a question or two. If not, onward. Um, thanks very much again. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.